Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The Alice Maxine Bowie Fellowship sponsors a member of the Lighthouse Writing Community to a full year of literary support and involvement at the Lighthouse. This fellowship was formed in the honor of the great Alice Maxine Bowie, who believes everyone has a right to a meaningful education, that much of our most meaningful education comes from literature, and that the world benefits from hearing stories. The fellowship includes four eight-week workshops per year, or a master class, as well as registration, lodging, and board for the Grand Lake Retreat, or an all-access pass to the Lighthouse Live Fest. Laura Bond was a recipient of the 2011-2012 Alice Maxine Bowie Fellowship. Laura's fellowship culminated with a public reading and celebration on September 8, 2012, during which she was properly feted and shared the fruits of the project that she's been working on over the course of the year with an appreciative crowd at the Lighthouse Grotto. We invite you to pause for a moment to help support this and future podcasts by getting out your cell phone and texting the word right now. That's W-R-I-T-E-N-O-W, no spaces, all lowercase, to 20222 to donate $5 to The Lighthouse. It's a simple two-step process. Text right now to the number 20. 20- Two two two, and then text yes to confirm, and five dollars will be added to your mobile bill. Message and data rates may apply. Thank you for supporting the Lighthouse Writers Workshop. Hi everyone. Thank you so much for coming tonight. My name's Andrea Dupree. If I haven't met you, um, and this is our first Alice Maxine Bowie Fellowship Celebration, and we're so glad you're here. Thank you. So the most frequently asked question about the Alice Maxine Bowie Fellowship is, who is this Alice Maxine Bowie? (laughs) Has stymied many a Google user. Um, One of our members came to us last year and said that this person, I'm trying to be gender, he or she, um, wanted to start this fellowship because um, he or she had felt excluded from this kind of opportunity of going and finding your voice and becoming a writer and having a community um, in his or her previous life, but then had the good fortune of um, getting a gift from a relative that allowed this person to avail themselves of all the creative perks and bells and whistles that they could have ever asked for. And um, their hope was that this, this awesome lady from Iowa, Alice Maxine Bowie, um, could fund future, you know, fellowships and community building efforts on our part for people who otherwise wouldn't be able to avail themselves of this. And this, so here's what this person told me to say about Alice Maxine Bowie. She's an awesome lady from Iowa who loves to help people who help themselves and others. 
You might be wondering why I had to write that down. <laughs> but I did because I wanted to get the wording right. And the helping themselves and others almost sounds like a bootstrappy type thing. But what I think this person meant was they're not in it just for themselves, but themselves, which is important, and the community that, that we formed at Lighthouse, which you are all a part of. So thank you for being a part of that. Um, so that's still mysterious, but we're keeping it that way. Sorry. The idea of the fellowship is that every year someone will be fully funded to partake of workshops for the full year, and at the end of the year, um, either the Lit Fest All Access or a week in Grand Lake, both of which have things to recommend them. I think you'll hear from Laura Bond that the Grand Lake uh, part of it has been important to her. Um, but we'll talk about that later, and I'm going to introduce Laura Bond appropriately soon. But one thing I've learned about Laura is she does things her way, and she wanted a warm-up act tonight. And <laughs> I'm totally totally in support of that. Um, her warm-up act is a person um, who is new to Lighthouse, but we hope not for long. Um, and his person name might be Adrian, but he goes by Molina Speaks. And he's a, this, this uh, bio is provided by Laura, and you'll see why we love her. A rapper with a law degree, Adrian Molina is a spoken word artist, musician, and educator. Molina is a member of the Café Cultura Artist Co Collective, a community-oriented performance hub that showcases the work of Latino and indigenous artists. And he's going to open up for us tonight. Thank you. All right, uh, I'm honored to be here. I'm very honored to be here, and I thank Ms. Bond for inviting me to uh, share some words with you. So uh, I'm reading some Chicken Scratch, unedited, unrehearsed, a short piece called Dream Purgatory. They forgot all of the stories, forgot to listen, forgot to look at the face of the storyteller into her eyes, forgot how to connect with his words, it wasn't that the storytellers stopped telling stories. It was just that they had stopped telling stories to each other, under trees, in circles, around fires, under skies, on top of mountains. So they forgot to look at each other, feel each other, and the stories died, interrupted, unfinished, derailed. It wasn't that the stories died. They just disappeared into the winds of time, Dream purgatory, writing to be spoken of, waiting to be spoken of, again. Uh, this came recently from uh, a writing session with my partner, Cherie Brown. Uh, we were reading the Tao Te Ching together, and um, these were my reflections from some of, uh, some of the passages. Ah, we ride again, under the new moon, our 21st, perhaps 22nd. As first harvest approaches, already I plan the second year's planting and harvest, still awaiting the first. Do not get ahead of yourself, soul. 
lessons in the digital age. Stop and listen. Read. You have borrowed a library of knowledge from the unborn. The wood on the ground awaits meditation. The altar asks for its particulars each day, but we wander by as though we do not hear it. The bedroom waits to be rearranged, pictures hanged, candles placed, a sacred space for love to grow itself, clutter needs cleared, sunlight needs to be allowed in. Those pictures still need printed. New growth awaiting space to begin anew. We are always in motion like the stars. No wonder stillness is remembered. Sticking out like the roots of a giant tree, you cannot simply walk over. Stillness need not be stagnation. Therein lies the trick. The simple eye sees it not as a trick. Have little and gain. Have much and be confused. No wonder there is always so much confusion. Confusion in the branches of the trees, so much to gain from what is, acceptance of what is, so much seeking out what is not. Pause, play, pause, play, pause, play, record. Everyone is recording everything as they pause, play, pause, play. There is nothing to pause, nothing is broken, there is nothing to fix, only truth to admire. Affirmations of existence today, a miraculous accomplishment to be. Affirmations of the heaviness of life. If you really knew me, you would know. And everyone knows what's coming and everybody dreads it. Because we run from it. Running from our own beauty. Running to ego, to ownership. Running to guns, to false rituals of love, comedy, addiction. Addicted to running from the truth. I don't run much anymore. I cannot laugh at you running when my soul knows you are not funny. I cannot speak when my heart has nothing to say. I cannot watch when my eyes do not believe you. I cannot watch you run from yourself, my mirrors. These are the lessons I have learned from you, heavy at times, lighter at times, neither heavy nor light. There is little appetite for the falsities of love, only the riches of truths which contain untruths. Living out the comedy of time, and I am funny. Funniest when I feel at ease in my own skin because you feel at ease in yours in that moment. Because isolation is the greatest form of punishment. Look at our prisons. So we must dance. Let us do as we say we must do, wish to do, as time does not pause. And there is no need to run after it, catch it, bottle it, consume it. We shall be it. Like the great river that flows through all things, let the images on the screen be as they are. Frozen in time, folly for comedy, now and again. But let us read and dance and cook. Let us make love like the gods. Let us pray and play somewhere between the many highs of the earth and its plants and mountains, its sunshine and wind, somewhere between birth and death, between, underneath, and inside the honesty of the heart's eye. The pen scratches what is barely legible to the critic. The observer observes, the doer, I, self-I, embodies the beauty of this candlelight. As the world, the universe, wanes, it has waxed, we are in waning, a cycle will begin anew. Some of us move in stillness, however momentary under the new moon, the night blue sky. My life's dream is to do what I'm already doing right now, as the river does. So let us read 
and be yoga. Let us feast with the trees of our lives. Let the lives, the truest lives, be under the bluest skies of our history's eye. The ancestors will understand. They will bless us. Some of them will curse us with frowns. But they will bless us nonetheless because we are freeing them too. Somewhere between obligation and free will. In love with the orchards, the fruits, and the flowers. My son and I, we shared jump shots today. And a sunset with a west side blood, a gangster, and his son tonight. I mentioned the sunset to the gangster. He looked at me like I was an alien. Then he stopped. He watched. He nodded in affirmation. I wrote sunrise above before sunset, thinking sunrise, and then I felt the need to change it as if there wasn't a simultaneous sunrise occurring at sunset before dusk as my lover sat in class. The five-year-old, he made his first basket, his first shot ever under my son's tutelage, and then two more, three in a row. Be really whole and all things will come to you. They come to us each day. Let us be those things, and we will, we do, enjoy the tragedy and the comedy of life. Now I see what Laura was up to. Thank you for that. Isolation is the greatest form of punishment. Um, And I feel like that's really what this is about. Um, Yes, writing is solitary. And um, coming up with something that inspiring, you spend a lot of time by yourself kind of banging your head into the wall. But having a place where people get you and appreciate the brilliance that you can come up with is what Lighthouse is about, and that's what the fellowship is about. And I feel secure saying that's what Laura Bond is about. Um, She is somebody who came to us several, many years ago, and one of the kind of hidden agendas of this introduction is not to cry, so I'm not going to. Um, But she's somebody who probably other people know better than I know, But the one thing I know about her is she's one of the smartest, most um, feeling people that I've ever met. And um, one of the things about writing, I think, is is how well do you connect with people? And anyone who's ever been in a workshop with Laura or has read one of her Westward articles or who has gone to Grand Lake with her feels connected to her in a very visceral way way. Um, She's a talented person. She was on the staff at Westward when she first came to Lighthouse. Um, And since then, she's directed programs like flowbots.org. I think she's freelancing. You're freelancing now for the symphony and some other really great places. Um, One of the things she did to get this fellowship was submitted a section of her, her novel called it's a YA novel, young adult novel, called The Likely Story of Lily Lucero, Girl Librarian and the World's First and Finest Exploding Book, which um, the committee... (laughs) 
the committee that was reviewing the applicants, I think we had something like 60 people applying for this fellowship the, the first year. Um, and already, by definition, the people who were applying were amazing, um, really talented writers who wanted access to the workshops, felt like it made them better, wanted access to the community, which, by the way, you don't have to have a dime to be part of this community. We don't care. Be part of the community. You're, you're here now and you're part of it. Um, but she wanted to be part of the community by taking workshops, going to Grand Lake, doing some of the things she's always valued. And it was hard. I mean, I, <laughs> I heard from the committee. We put together a committee of faculty, um, fiction faculty, uh, staff, some members of the community, and everybody scored individually the 20 manuscripts that kind of made it to the final level. And then they met for at least two, two or three hours to talk about each of them. Um, in addition to all the emailing everybody had been doing. So it was, it was a hard decision, but what struck everybody about Laura was not only her talent, um, but her heart and what she brought to Lighthouse and what she brings to the page are very similar things. And I'm verging on getting choked up, so I'm not going to say more, but I want to introduce, um, our rebel, our resident rebel, who won the fiction fellowship and is going to read nonfiction and poetry, and <laughs> God bless her, uh, Miss Laura Bond. smell on you. This was part of the, the application. Cause you're mine. Okay. <laughs> so there's something I just have to get out of the way. I just have to say, holy shit. <laughs> um, as some of you know, this... It's not my favorite part of the gig, but I do, I do like it, actually. I was going to pretend to be Bill Clinton, but I think now I'll just pretend to be Molina. So, yeah. Thank you, Adrian. Um, so, before I read, I would just like to say it's amazing to see all of you here. Um, and thank you for honoring Lighthouse and for honoring me and the Alice Maxine Bowie Fellowship. It's wonderful to see Lighthouse grow. I have been involved here for a while, six or seven years or so. Um, and it just keeps growing and growing and growing, and more and more people know about it. And that's great, but it's not a surprise because Lighthouse is in every way an endeavor that's fueled by love and by vision of Andrea and Mike. And it attracts people who are pursuing a vision that's fueled by love and it attracts teachers who have something to share, which is also fueled by love. And it attracts people who, when faced with the proposition of how to honor a loved one, a family member, they choose to do a generous act and give something to someone they don't even know so that they can pursue a vision that's fueled by love. 
And so I just want to say thank you to that person and thank you for having that impulse. I don't know who you are. <laughs> I hope to someday. Um, but um, the validation of this fellowship has, um, I guess, empowered me to make some changes in my life and most of all to take my writing seriously. So, so thank you. Um, this was a fellowship for fiction, as Andrea pointed out, and I did work on fiction. I did work on Lily Lucero, and perhaps the next time we meet, that's what I'll be reading. Um, but in Grand Lake this year, I was um, moved in a workshop that was led by Mike Henry, um, an, an essay and memoir workshop, and something just came up for me. And Chris Ranzik says that when creativity comes to your house, you have to treat it um, as a guest, and you have to show it the most hospitality you possibly can and, and not tell it to go away. So I paid attention to what came up for me at Grand Lake, and I wrote a piece. Some of you have heard it. Um, I consulted with a number of experts, Lighthouse-related experts, to see if I should indeed read this again, and they said that I should. So if you don't like it or you're sad to hear it again, you can blame Jenny Attell and <laughs> Meg Nix, who's maybe having a baby as we speak. Yeah. Okay. Oh, and Andrea. Okay, <clears throat> and my voice is going to shake, but I'm fine. <clears throat> we didn't have money when I was growing up, and I didn't know this until fourth grade, when my parents got us into a good school in a nicer neighborhood filled with families who did. They had houses on streets I'd never been to and tastes for things I'd never heard of. Soon I had a new set of friends whose fathers had jobs with strange titles, litigators, ophthalmologists, anesthesiologists. My dad was an electrician who had his own Christmas tree business, selling Oregon pine to wealthy suburban families every December. My mother was an artist, a stay-at-home mom who ran an underground daycare out of our house. We had a used green station wagon that usually worked, though once some wires in the fancy electrical control panel got hinky, and we spent an entire year listening to an early computer-era vo voice warning us in an endless loop, the door is ajar, the door is ajar. Twice a day, my mother drove the station wagon to the front gates of Madison Meadows School, where one's clothes, shoes, and hair were assessed daily in the halls, the classrooms, the locker room. The notion that self-worth was determined by the volume and quality and cuteness of one's material possessions was accepted as an absolute truth to be shared with my unenlightened parents. I wanted things, clothes, banana clips, cabbage patch dolls. I wanted things for my mother, too. I wanted her to want them, to crave a closet of stackable shoeboxes to collect the silver rectangles of eyeshadow that lined the marble vanities in Marcy Bettini's house, in Peggy Lindauer's, in Carrie Keats. In the fall of that first year, my school threw a, par a parent-student dance, and my mom bought a dress for this rare special occasion. It was purple with black stripes that met at a V and a leather belt. We bought it at Diamonds for $100. I was ecstatic. That Christmas, I convinced my dad that what my mother really longed for in the deepest, most throbbing chamber of her heart was the rabbit fur coat we saw on sale at the mall. 
clearly the perfect gift for a woman who rarely went out, rarely had a meal she didn't cook for, served to, and eat with her children at home, which, by the way, was located in Phoenix, Arizona, where a fur coat made about as much sense as a surfboard. We might as well have given her the other things the other mothers owned, which she had no use for or interest in. A tennis racket, a 10-speed, a pair of skis, a passport. Asked what she wanted for Christmas every year, my mom always said, world peace. It drove me mad. (laughs) One Sunday after a sleepover, Mandy Arthur's mom drove me home in her Mercedes, Mandy in the front seat. We were tired after a late night of trampoline jumping and swimming and watching movies in Mandy's room. It was a long drive from Scottsdale, and we didn't talk much, but when we turned onto Flynn Lane, Mandy asked me casually, don't you hate it when your friend lives in a bad neighborhood and you have to go there and you hope no one sees you? This is the same skinny girl who told me that she lost a pound every time she ran a lap around her huge house, which was a double-barreled shotgun wallop to the twin birds of my pre-adolescent insecurity as a borderline chubby nine-year-old coming into painful awareness of my decreased human value owed to my membership in the lower middle class. When I told this story to my mother, wounded beside her on the scratchy plaid couch where we did our best talking, she pretended it was funny. She nudged me to recite with her the limerick we'd made up about Mandy and her mom, Candy, and the material bounty of their lives, the ease and extravagance we perceived to be the pillar of their existence, a joke to soften the pain and longing it caused in me. Mandy and Candy go shopping on Monday and Tuesday and Thursday and Friday and Sunday. (laughs) Mandy and Candy live in Paradise Valley, where you'll find no Kmart and no bowling alley. (laughs) The next day, my mom painted our kitchen cabinets to look like they were made of wood, like the cabinets in the houses where my dad installed ceiling fans, like the cabinets at Mandy's house. But it was just oil paint on particle board, and it looked fake and embarrassing. I wanted real wood cabinets and a stainless steel sink and a giant refrigerator, like the giant refrigerator at Jody Hughes' house, which was stuffed with popsicles and plastic pickles and Coke and Kraft cheese, the pantheon of name-brand snack foods, blaring invitation in primary colors, everything new and inviting, abundant and functional, expensive... We never wanted for food in our house, and we all loved our house, especially my mom. It had a front yard filled with trees that gave tangerines, pecans, and mulberries. Our house was at the top of a cul-de-sac, a symmetrical universe my brother and I were free to explore, always returning safely to our sunken family room, to our bookshelves, and the seizures of laughter that froze and paralyzed paralyzed us around the dinner table on so many nights. One Christmas tree, uh, sorry, one Christmas after a good tree season, my father installed wall-sized murals in each of our bedrooms. Mine was of a blue sky. My brother's was a picture of Earth taken from the moon, which in hindsight might partly explain why he feels like an alien marooned on this planet, <laughs> navigating an ill-fitting world, but that's another essay. <laughs> My parents' room had a pine forest and a big blue lake, which reminded my mom of the thing that saved and raised her, the one good thing about Oregon. We spent a lot of time in my parents' room, the whole family squished in the waterbed, which rocked and bulged beneath our family pile. My brother, bless his subversive 12-year-old heart, made secret tape recordings of many of the hours we spent in that bed. (laughs) And sometimes, when I go home to Phoenix, we get drunk and listen and laugh and weep. 
I always want him to fast forward through the parts, and there are many of me asking my mother for things. Mom, can we get the strawberry shortcake short lunch? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Dad. <laughs> All right, let's start that over. <laughs> okay. I always want him to fast forward through the parts, and there are many of me asking my mother for things. Mom, can we get the strawberry shortcake lunchbox? Mom, Tina got a Schwinn bike with a bell. Can we get one? Mom, unicorn stickers? Mom, little orphan Annie dress? Velcro sneakers? Guest jeans? Can we, Mom? Over and over, I made her refuse me. I forced her to hurt me, which was the one thing in the entire world she did not want to do. Mom, 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 Mom. Our house was filled with my mother's paintings, huge landscapes with orange trees, purple rivers, a kaleidoscopic palette that reflected the world as she saw it or wished it to be. One day, years after we moved, after a bad x-ray, she said she wished she could just walk into one of those paintings, lay beside the rushing river, go to sleep on the flat stones. That house is still the one where I most often see my mother in dreams, but the one she died in was across town, North Phoenix, an upgrade. We moved for the better high school, which my brother nearly flunked out of, and I ditched for the art school in the black part of town. The house was big, and the yard was big too, but it was just a little more than we could afford, so my mom went to work. She taught herself financial planning. Oh, irony. Got certificates, an office, an attache case, but she hated it with every bit of her artist being, and it still wasn't enough, and we strained and aged and laughed less. The smoking helped her cope until later, when it caused the thing that would require a coping beyond anything any of us were in any way prepared to muster, not even her, especially not her, child of a maniac who grew up sleeping outside during Eugene winters, who was never once told she was loved until she met my sweet father, and who nonetheless managed, drawing from some inexplicable, uninherited well of grace, to tell me, on an acceptably regular basis, that she did. We didn't ask her what she wanted for Christmas the year before. It's not a question you ask a woman in the fishbowl. She wanted the only things that ever mattered. Her lungs, her hair, her hands, her blood, her bones, her life before cancer. She wanted a miracle, but what she got was the opposite, a complete and total disintegration. But I promised her I wouldn't tell that part, not even to myself, so I don't. The lessons lie elsewhere. Before we moved to North Phoenix, my mom took me to a secondhand store for the first time. It was the first stage of what would become a decades-long experiment with the dampening of desire, necessitated by circumstance as well as a changing persuasion. Gradually, I just didn't really want stuff anymore, and this has allowed leaps, journeys, a paring down. Death is the ultimate denial of desire. After that, you learn to practice what poor people all over the world do every day. You pretend. There are things I want, of course. A Tempur-Pedic mattress, a boyfriend, an iPhone. I do want world peace, but mostly I want to walk into one of my mother's paintings, to sit a while under one of her fuchsia trees near that river, to hold her hand like she asked me to when we first found out, like we do in my dreams, in the yard, in the kitchen, on the couch, to thank her and to breathe her, Mom. 
So last time I read that, I just walked away, but I thought I would read something completely different. Um, this is dedicated to Chris Ranzik, and I'm glad he's not here to hear it, because it's, it's really silly. And I, uh, I wrote this the night we got home from Grand Lake, which if you're there, you know that to come home from Grand Lake is really hard because you're with a group of people who kind of fall in love with each other and go incrementally insane in exactly the same way. (laughs) So this is called When Willie Comes Over. When Willie Nelson comes over for dinner, I'm going to wash his long hair in a vat of grapefruit juice and jasmine leaves, rub his calloused fingers with thick shea butter I churn myself. I'll ask Willie to sit on my lap and let me burp him like a baby. We'll play cards and he'll win, but I'll beat his ass at Parcheesi. <laughs> when Willie comes over, he can smoke a huge dube while I play the lute, which I shall learn in anticipation of his visit. <laughs> we'll sit in Lotus and discuss the day's news from Narnia, eat corn and sing On the Road Again in 15 different languages. <laughs> we'll talk to a Ouija and dance a skidoo. When Willie comes over, that's just what we'll do. We'll stay up late and braid each other's hair. He'll, <laughs> he'll tell me about life and Lucky, and I'll tell him the strange dream I'm going to have the night before he comes over. <laughs> we'll laugh and laugh in the inflatable pool filled with cool water pumped from an artesian well in Luchenbach. He'll read my palm and wash my feet. We'll crank call Bob Dylan's answering machine. <laughs> Willie, I'll say, you old carpuckle, how you make fit so many chickens under your hat. (laughs) Late in the night, we'll hotwire a truck with a dog in the back, and we'll drive and drive down one of Willie's highways, chasing a rainbow lit by the moon on the road again. Que amando de gitanos que van por la carretera. So the dawn calls him back to the ranch and me back to the house and the breaking light. I'll collect the cups and start to get ready for the next good time that Willie Nelson's going to come on over. Thank you. Those of you who thought you were inoculated by hearing the essay in Grand Lake, not so much, not so much. Thank you, Laura Bond. I think that's evidence right now of how amazing the crew is here at Lighthouse and how um, difficult it is to make decisions about who gets what, um, and, and that's my attempt to pivot to next year's um, fellow, and I haven't come up with a great alternative to the gendered word fellow. Does anybody have one? Person. Our next person? Our next person. (laughs) Recipient. Um, Conspirator is kind of the best thing I've heard. Conspirator. Yes, rebel is good, too. Rebel conspirator. Um, thank you, Laura Bond. You um, have made your way into all of our hearts, and you've broken it and built it back up. 
What else could we ask for? Wow. Um, so I think that speaks for itself. Uh, the next fellowship, conspiratorship, personship, rebelship was supposed to focus on nonfiction, and we got quite a few, quite a few um, applicants. They were all phenomenal, and. I was getting emails from the people who were reading them all and scoring them all, and there was confusion, elation, consternation, um, awe, and all those things coming through in, in the missives that I got. One of the messages I got said, I don't want to speak for the group, but I felt each of the candidates in the top four had something very real to provide Lighthouse and continued engagement with the Lighthouse community. Um, there, were, there were two people among the finalists that were painful for, for the committee to not at least acknowledge in some way. Um, and two of those people are here tonight. One of them is Andrea Doré. So please come on up. And the other is Michael Patrick Eltrick. Eltrich? Eltrick? Eltrich? Maybe he didn't even make it. He might not have made it this far, which is his loss. But it, So he's the other person that they wanted to acknowledge. And then the runner-up for the fellowship was somebody who, who I know, and not as well as some of you know, but I've seen the generosity of spirit, the intelligence, the humor, that ability to connect that we were talking about with, with Laura Bond. Um, and she's somebody who already volunteers here an awful lot. And for the, the runner-up this year, it was announced that they would get the um, all-access pass to the Juno Diaz visit in November which includes not only his onstage interview, which anybody is welcome to come to. I think there's like a $10 ticket price, which we waive if anybody wants to go, that that's, that's an impediment to them coming. Um, and then he does a craft talk for writers, kind of an inside baseball-type talk the next day that, that she gets to go to, as well as a dinner. Um, and... That person this year is Jeanette Matusiak. What a gifted writer and what a pleasure of a person. I mean, she just has volunteered a ton here at Lighthouse and she's always here to support every other writer at Lighthouse, which I feel like is what we're really about, is we're all in this together and it's hard enough. Um, so let's be there for each other. So uh, Jeanette, thank you. And everybody was kind of just in love with you after reading your application, so thanks. Um, so the next year's fellowship winner, not to be overly you know, dramatic about this, um, 
The committee emailed me and said, we selected Courtney because she has a distinct voice and a point of view, a very focused direction for her work, a vision of how to give back to the community. Um, We did rate her pure writing talent as amazing. (laughs) And um, she met and exceeded all of the fellowship criteria. I got to know her a little bit because she volunteered at the Lit Fest. Um, She was working at the um, Whole Foods floral department. So any of the flowers you saw at Lit Fest were thanks to Courtney. Yeah, I know. I know. It was amazing. Marie knows because she was basically doing everything at Lit Fest. And um, so she saw this in action. Courtney earned a BA in Asian and Middle Eastern cultures from Barnard College of Columbia University. She was a Barnard College Writing Fellow from 2001 to 2005. She was a cross-cultural educator in Asia for several years and has had many adventures around the world. Her professional exploits range from being a florist, which I think I mentioned, um, to a photographic assistant on an expedition that documented glacial melt on Mount Everest. She just launched a consulting business through which she provides web copywriting, we might want to talk later, and grant writing services to social enterprises, not nonprofits, and startups. She lives in Boulder, Colorado, where she enjoys practicing yoga, hiking, trail running, and of course, writing in her free time. Miss Courtney Zenner. That was a hard act to follow, and actually two hard acts to follow. Um, It's truly an honor to be here tonight and uh, to have been chosen for this fellowship. I know they're phenomenal writers at the Lighthouse, um, having been involved here for about the last uh, seven or eight months. I've been totally blown away. Um, So my reading is a selection from my working memoir. Um, It's a story of bipolar disorder and of surviving my father's suicide. Um, In this scene, the narrator, me, um, has been asked to complete an art installation of calligraphy on banners for a wedding, for a good friend's wedding, um, with the help of a groomsman named Danny. And this scene takes place at the wedding site in the San Juan Mountains near Durango, Colorado. Danny and I hitch the banners on sets of pine posts that line the walkway to the wedding site. They look phenomenal in harmony with the cerulean sky, the towering red bluffs, and the sagebrush that surround them. The ceremony and the reception are a whirl of blessings, champagne, whiskey, and sunset. I have to get up and dance or I might just fall asleep. I yell at the woman sitting next to me at dinner and run toward the center of the wedding tent where Danny scoops me up in his arms and starts whizzing me around the dance floor. We did it, Court. Those banners are amazing, he whispers in my ear, the warm scent of whiskey strong on his breath. The band plays on, and hours later, aided by our inebriation, Danny leads me toward toward his quaint little camper that is parked in a secluded pine forest near the wedding site. The dark sky above is cloudless, and we stare straight up at the perfect stars as we walk through the trees, nearly tripping over our own bliss. The Milky Way creates a blurry white river across the ebony expanse of night. 
How lovely, I coo at the camper nestled in the woods. How perfect. Danny lights a celebratory joint, and we, talk lo- and we take long, deep drags together on the steps of the camper, which are just the right size for us to squeeze in together. He wraps his strong arms around me, picks a stem of a columbine flower that grows wild at our feet, and brushes it flirtatiously along my neck. We barely make it inside before my tiny yellow sundress and his crisp white-collared shirt fly off, our bodies entangled on a tiny single bed. Sometime later, I nestle my head on his warm and perfect shoulder. I run my dangling fingers along the beautiful lines of the hardwood floor, a personal touch of his. So unique an investment in the little camper. (laughs) We talk softly about backcountry ski trips and paragliding and soaks in secluded hot springs. I want to introduce you to my mother, he says. I sleep hard for a few hours. At dawn, I wake up, desperate to drink water. I search the bedsheets, or should I say, the stained maroon fleece blanket serving as a bedsheet for my yellow designer sundress, which is crumpled in a pathetic heap under Danny's hips. I grab the first clothing that is free, Danny's white-collared shirt that now has a burn hole from the joint and my lipstick stains all over the greased and tearing collar. I sit on the edge of the too cramped bed and notice on my bare legs the scratch of the torn vinyl seat. Cheap yellow foam spews out of the large gashes in the brown and orange floral patterned cover. I step on a discarded bottle cap laying sharp point upward on the floor and grimace as sand and dried pine needles crackle under my feet. What a mess. Doesn't he ever clean this place? I wonder. I tiptoe gingerly, dizzily, down the tiny stairs of the camper to the solid ground, and a piece of metal protruding from the last step cuts my heel. I take a deep breath and glance up at the pine trees. The sun glares down at me from a cloudless, sharp blue sky. Finally, I relieve the urgent pressing in my bladder and see that the camper is actually rusty with a stripe of putrid orange paint around the perimeter. It looks like it is 40 years old and decaying. You couldn't sell that camper for 20 bucks, the groom, Ryan, later jokes. I realize mid-squat amongst the trees that we are actually not in a secluded forest. (laughs) But camped in the driveway of the groom's parents. I roll my eyes and pray that Ryan's parents are not awake at this early hour to see me. A random wedding guest, post one night stand, peeing on their Columbine plants. (laughs) So you're going to have to stay tuned for uh, Courtney's end of year celebration to hear uh, what else she has going on with that. (laughs) And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Bill Henderson is the main person who Laura Bond worked with this year. Who? Oh, and Sarah, but she's not here. And then um, Jenny, who was in Grand Lake, they were the main people who worked with Laura this year on her fellowship. So thank you for being here. So we'll be hearing from Courtney about this time next year, about what she accomplished during her year, and then we'll also be crowning the first poet 
um, to receive the Alice Maxine Bowie Fellowship. Thank you all for being part of this community. Um, This is all about you guys, and we appreciate you, and we wouldn't be here without you. So thank you very much. Stay and have some wine and food. Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Writers Podcast. We bring this to you thanks to the Lighthouse members, funders, and listeners like you who support the cause. We are grateful to the SCFD Tier 3 for their support. More information on the Lighthouse Writers Workshop and opportunities for involvement can be found on our website, lighthousewriters.org.